All right, church family, if you would open up in your copy of God's word to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three is our text for today. This is, um, and I'll say this again in a moment, this is a part of a longer uh, passage of scripture. And um, I'm going to just going to read verse one through three to begin with. And, um, and then at the end of our time together, uh, we will um, see the rest of these verses. Okay, but let's for now just look at verses one through three. I'm going to read from God's word. You follow along in your copy. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. From death to life, dead in sin. That's how our passage today. Really, death to life is the theme of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And then verses 1 through 3, today we're going to look at being dead in sin. Have you ever stood in the middle of a pile of human bones? That probably wasn't the question you were expecting I was going to ask. And I'm guessing for most of us in here, your answer is no. Probably not. But there was a prophet of God who did. He stood in a pile of human bones. Ezekiel prophesied during the years in which the nation of Israel was suffering the consequences of their rebellion against God. God had basically did what he said he would do. If they turned away from the Lord, he said, I'm going to send nations in and they're going to conquer you and they're going to carry you away from your land. They're going to you're going to destroy your homes. You're going to live in, a, in another land for a number of years. And that's exactly what had happened. Uh, other nations had come in and they had conquered them and carried them into exile. Physically, there were Israelites who were still alive. They, they, were, they were living in that sense, physically. But politically, we could say, and even more so, spiritually, they were dead. They were dead. They appeared to have been completely rejected by God, which is the worst form of deadness anyone could ever experience. There's something greater than just dying physically. It is to be rejected by God. God is life, and if we're rejected by him, then we don't have life. Not only physical life, but spiritual life as well. And they appear to have been completely rejected by God. All hope seemed lost for those whom God had chosen to be his people. And to illustrate the hopeless situation of the Israelites, God took Ezekiel and he set him down in a valley. And in that valley, all around Ezekiel were dry bones. Let me let Ezekiel describe it for you. Ezekiel said this, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and behold, they were very dry. So that was the situation. Very many bones that were very dry. In other words, we could say that those people, their bones, were as dead as dead could be. They, were, they weren't just bones, they were dried up bones. Now, why did God put Ezekiel in a valley full of dry bones? 
Well, friends, it was to give him a picture of Israel's spiritual state. It was to give him a picture of the spiritual state of people who have rejected God. They're not walking in fellowship with him. You see, they weren't wounded and in need of a bandage. They weren't merely thirsty and in need of water. They weren't merely hungry and in need of food. They weren't merely sick and in need of medicine. They were dead and in need of life. They were completely hopeless. Later in that same passage of Scripture there in Ezekiel, Israel is quoted as saying, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Not just from their land, but they felt cut off from God Himself. They were dead and in need of life. They were completely hopeless. And that is the scene God placed before Ezekiel's eyes. A valley of death. A valley of complete hopelessness. They were dead and in need of life. They were completely hopeless. But then God asked Ezekiel a crazy question. He said this. God said, he looked at Ezekiel and he said, Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? And that is a question that is actually very relevant to every single one of us here today. It's a question that's very relevant for every single person in our world. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with me? Can these bones live? In other words, can what is dead be brought back to life? What does that have to do with me? I mean, I'm not standing in a valley full of dry bones today, and I'm not planning on doing that anytime soon. But friend, the reality is you might be the dry bones. You might be the dry bones. And if you're not the dry bones today, then you once were dry bones. Though the Apostle Paul, writing the letter to the Ephesians, lived several hundred years after Ezekiel stood in that valley, he is addressing the very same question in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Can these bones live? Can the dead be brought back to life? More specifically, can those spiritually dead be brought back to life? Can these bones live? Now, why would Paul be talking about this? Is it because the Ephesians had found themselves standing in valleys full of dry bones? No, no. Why is Paul talking about this? It's because all of us come into this world spiritually dead. And our only hope is that God would intervene in our deadness and give us new life. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 teaches us this church. Apart from God's saving grace, we are hopelessly dead in sin. Apart from God's saving grace, we are hopelessly dead in sin. So far in our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we've seen a a short greeting followed by two long sentences. In the greeting, chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, we learn that Paul the Apostle was writing to, uh, to the saints in Ephesus. And these people are saints because they believed in Jesus for salvation. So that's who he's writing to, people who have trusted in Christ. Then in the first long sentence, verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, Paul praises God for the blessings of salvation that flow to all who have believed in Christ. And they flow to all of us by means of God's choosing and his redeeming and his sealing activity. Then Paul made his way into the second long sentence of this letter, verses 15 through 23. And there was a prayer that Paul prayed for the believers to grow in their knowledge of God. And he ended that prayer by focusing in on the power of God displayed in Christ Jesus. 
Now, I mentioned that because in 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 the original text, there were no chapters and verses. Paul didn't write chapters and verses. He didn't write part of a letter and then put a little parentheses and say, OK, now everybody go take a break. Forget what I just said. Now come back to a new topic in a minute. No, the, the last verse of chapter one flows right into the first verse of chapter two. I don't think that Paul is continuing his prayer, but. He is still continuing with this thought of the mighty power of God. And so with our minds still mesmerized by the power of God in Christ, Paul now gives another long sentence. I told you that Ephesians is just full of long sentences. He gives another long sentence in which he describes the power of God in the face of spiritually dead people. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul describes God's transforming intervention in the lives of these believers in terms of their being brought from death to life. Now, the main verb in this passage, the main action is actually not found until we get to verse five. If you scan your eyes down to verse five for a minute, Paul says that God has made us alive. That's the main verb. And then there's a couple more that follow that. But that's that that's the heartbeat of this passage that we are made alive. But before he gets to that gloriously good news, Paul camps out for a few verses in the midst of the terribly bad news. Paul knows, church, that if we are going to truly appreciate the heights to which God has raised us in Christ, and I'm looking forward to getting to that part of this long sentence, the heights to which God has raised us in Christ, if we're going to truly appreciate that, then we must first understand the depths from which we have been raised. Paul could have simply said, God made you alive in Christ. Or he could have said, you were dead and God made you alive in Christ. You were dead in sin and God made you alive in Christ. But he says, and you were dead. And then he pauses and he dives deep into our spiritual deadness. Knowing our need to ponder our spiritual condition apart from Christ, he leads the Ephesian believers church and he leads us down into the depths of our sin in these first three verses of chapter two. But he does not leave us there. He takes us down to make us appreciate more fully the powerful love of God that has raised us to new life in Christ. So today, we're just going to spend our time diving into the depths of our sin. And as we dive into the depths of our sin, church, we're diving into a grave. We're diving into a very dark place. We're diving into a pit which can be described as dead hopelessness. Paul begins by saying, and you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead in the trespasses and sins. What are trespasses and sins? Well, really, they're synonyms. You remember that word from grammar class, right? Synonym, two two words that basically mean the same thing. A trespass, we could say, is straying off the right path. A sin is missing the mark that we should aim and hit so to, to be dead in our sin, to be dead in our trespasses, means that we have strayed off the path of God's holiness. It means that we have missed the mark of God's holiness, which is the standard that he has set for all people because he is holy. And not only are we guilty of these, Paul says we are dead in them. These trespasses and sins have not merely harmed us, they have killed us. Spiritually, we have been rendered lifeless because of sin. And what does that look like? What does that mean for us? And is there any good news? As we look at verses 1 through 3, I want to share with you six truths. I know that sounds like a lot from only three verses. A couple of these, especially at the end, I'm only going to spend about a minute on on them. But I I think as as we dive deep, we want some truths that we can really hang on to 
and then that lead us not to stay in the pit of sin and death, but lead us to the hope that we can have in Christ. So let me give you the first truth regarding the spiritual condition of being dead in sin. And we'll spend the most time on this first one. Being dead in sin shows itself in our sinful living. Being dead in sin shows itself in our sinful living. You may be thinking, as far as I know, I'm breathing right now. I've been breathing pretty much my whole life. My heart is beating. Blood is running through my body. Neurons in my brain are firing, depending on if you... Skipped your cup of coffee this morning. They might not be firing as much as they should be, but you've got some neurons firing up there. I don't think I'm dead. I don't necessarily feel like I'm dead right now. So what in the world? How can you say I am dead in sin? Church, the deadness Paul is talking about here is not a physical deadness, but a spiritual deadness. And in fact, Paul first describes being dead in sin by pointing to how we live our lives. In other words, the first thing he points to of, of, of how we see that we're dead in sin is by saying, you want to know how you're dead in sin? Look at how you live. So we're physically alive, but we're actually walking a walk of death. We're living a life of death apart from Christ. Notice what he says. He says, and you are dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked. In a very real sense, apart from divine saving intervention, we are the walking dead. Do you want to see what it looks like to be dead in sin, Christian? Then look at how you once lived. Look at how you once lived. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, Paul gives three ways in which we walk in sin. He gives three ways. I want you to notice these three ways, and they're all important. First, notice that we walk, when we're dead in sin, we walk in the sinful world, in the way of the sinful world. Look around and and you see the world around us. Paul says, this is what it looks like to be dead in sin. You are following the course of this world. You see that there in this passage. Following after the sinful world. Someone who's dead in sin lives a life characterized by following after the ways of the world. Just think about it for a moment, church. Every day, you and I, we are faced with the choice to follow God's way or follow the way of the world. We were talking about it in Bible study this week. The the world just voices coming in to our lives saying, do this, go this way, believe this, don't believe that, don't go that way. It's just bombarded with the ways of the world. To be dead in sin means we follow the way of the world, a world which has been corrupted with sin and is full of people who are operating under the control of sin. First John chapter two, verse 15 warns us against the way of the world. John writes, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. And so being dead in sin shows itself in our sinful living first as we walk in the way of the sinful world. But another way being dead in sin shows itself in our sinful living is that we walk in the way of sinful Satan. We walk in the way of the sinful world and we walk in the way of sinful Satan. Paul continues in verse two. You see that in the text following not only the course of the world, but following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Well, who in the world have you ever read this and wondered who is the the prince of the power of the air? That's an interesting title to give someone. Well, let me just simply tell you, it's Satan. It's talking about Satan. Satan, the devil, is the prince of the power of the air. It's Satan, the devil, the serpent from the garden, the enemy of God and those made in God's image. So, friend, when when we sin, we are following Satan. I mean, we like to 
we like to look and point our fingers at, at certain people or certain groups of people. Often we call them, might call them a cult or certain entertainers who do really horrible things on stage uh, during their, their shows. And we say, look at those Satan worshipers. And the reality is, every time we're, we sin, we're following Satan. We, we've replaced worship of the one true God with the worship of the deceiver. We're following after Satan. This verse helps us not underestimate the limited power of Satan and the influence he has on our world. It's a limited power, but we don't want to underestimate the limited power that Satan has. Satan is called the God of this age in 1 Corinthians. He's called a prowling, roaring, devouring lion in 1 Peter. He's called the great dragon in the book of Revelation. And then hear these words found in 1 John. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And then John goes on a couple of verses later to say that those who practice sinning are, and he calls people who practice sinning, children of the devil. Church, last week we learned, and if you want to skip your eyes back up a couple of verses to the end of Ephesians chapter 1, we learned that Satan is being crushed under the feet of Jesus. But until the final battle, he does wield a limited power over this present evil age. And being dead in sin, we walk in the way of simple Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work, actively at work in the sons of disobedience. Remember that? We talked about God being at work in his power displayed in Christ. Well, Satan Satan is also at work rebelling against God and his ways, tempting us to follow in his way. But there's a third way that being dead in sin shows itself in our sinful living. Not only do we walk in the way of the sinful world, not only do we walk in the way of sinful Satan, but church, we walk in the way of our sinful flesh. We walk in the way of our sinful flesh. It's not just the world around us calling us into sin. And it's not just Satan attacking us with deceitful enticements to sin. But it is the sin within us that reveals a spiritual, a state of spiritual deadness, being dead in sin. Notice verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we don't just sin because the world around us is sinning and we don't just sin because Satan tempts us to sin. We sin because we want to sin. What does it say? We're acting upon the passions of our flesh. When we sin, we're carrying out our desires, the desires of our body and mind. Listen, we don't engage in sexual immorality or wasteful spending or angry rampages or or, or violent aggression or indulgent overeating or secret self-harm or destructive gossip or any other number of sins you want to you want to list. We don't engage in those things because the world around us makes us. We don't engage in those things because Satan makes us. At the end of the day, we engage in those things because our sinful flesh wants to do those things. And we give in to the cravings of our sinful flesh. James said this. He said, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? He doesn't say, what causes fights and quarrels among you? All the world around you. I mean, if the world would just act better, you'd be acting better. He doesn't say, oh, it's that, it's that devil. It's that, it's that Satan. If it wasn't for, if it wasn't for his temptations, you he says, why do you fight and quarrel? Because your passions at work within you. Friend, are you walking in the way of the sinful world today? Are you walking in the way of sinful Satan today? Are you walking in the way of your sinful flesh today? God's word says that that is the walk of death. 
Being dead in sin shows itself in simple living. Secondly, being dead in sin is our natural spiritual condition. Being dead in sin is our natural spiritual condition. Perhaps you say, why is it that my flesh craves sin? Why is it that following the world and following after Satan seems to come so easy? Well, it's because being dead in our sin is our natural spiritual condition. In other words, you don't have to work your way into a state of being dead in sin. You come into this world already in a state of being dead in your sin. Oh, the doctors and nurses and mothers and fathers might breathe sighs of relief as newborn babies let out that very first and beautiful cry, signifying that there is life in them, that there's, their heart is beating and their lungs are, are, are moving oxygen. That, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense of joy in that first cry because it's a cry of life. But the reality is that that little one is spiritually dead. Look at what Paul says. He says, and we're by nature children of God's wrath. By nature. By nature we're dead in sin. By nature we walk in sin. By nature we are children of wrath. Friend, our hopelessness is amplified by the fact that we come into this world already in a condition of deadness. This is what we call the doctrine of original sin. When Adam sinned, he not only sinned as Adam the man, but he sinned as Adam the representative of the entire human race. Hear what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 21 and 22, Paul says that by a man came death. And then in that second verse, he says, in Adam all die. And this was the cry of King David after he had sinned and was confronted with his sin and experienced the guilt and was broken before the Lord. He said, he said this, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity in sin. Did my mother conceive me? He wasn't talking about a sinful choice his mother made that led to him being born. He was talking about the doctrine of original sin without using those words. He was talking about his connection to Adam. He was talking about this reality that we're all born in sin. In other words, he's saying my sin goes far deeper than these bad choices I made over the past few weeks or months or however long it had been. My sin goes to the very nature of who I am. Friend, the reality is that we don't commit sin only, but we are sinners. We don't merely fall into sin. We are born sinners. It is in our very nature to rebel against God. And so our living speaks to our desperately hopeless situation of being dead in sin. And our nature speaks to our desperately hopeless situation of being dead in sin. But third, being dead in sin makes us deserving of God's wrath. Being dead in sin makes us deserving of God's wrath. You see, if sin wasn't a big deal, then perhaps being dead in sin wouldn't be a big deal. And there's so many people who are willing to admit that, oh, yeah, I'm not perfect. Very few people are, are, are unwilling to admit that they're not perfect. Most people are willing to admit, yeah, I've, I've done some bad things. I've, I've, I've sinned. If God is a holy God, and I'm, I've definitely fallen short of that standard. The problem is that so many don't think that that's a big deal. But sin is a big deal because God is a holy God. And so if we remain dead in our sin, then what we have ahead of us is nothing less than the wrath of almighty God. Paul adds to the seriousness of our spiritual condition in verse three by mentioning the wrath of God. And we were by nature children of God's wrath. We are children of wrath. What, what is wrath? What do we mean by that? It is God's righteous justice poured out in punishment of sin. 
It's God's righteous justice. In other words, it's not an uncontrolled kind of fit of anger. It's a good and right and just punishment of sin. It is His wrath. And it is real, it is just, and it is terrible. Do you think God's wrath towards sin is no big deal? Why don't you ask one of the people drowning in the global flood? You think God's wrath is no big deal? Why don't you ask one of the citizens of Sodom or Gomorrah as fire rained down from heaven, burning up them and their cities? You think the wrath of God is no big deal? Why don't you ask Pharaoh what it was like to see a wall of water, the Red Sea, coming at him while his chariot wheels were stuck in the mud at the bottom of the Red Sea? You think God's wrath is no big deal? Why don't you ask Korah? who rebelled against the will of God and the earth swallowed him up alive. You think the wrath of God is no big deal? Well, ask Israel as their homes were destroyed and they were carried into exile into a foreign land. You think the wrath of God is no big deal? Why don't we ask Jesus as He hung on the cross, as He cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? As He endured the wrath of Almighty God for your sin and our sin. Ask Him on His way to the cross as He's sweating drops of blood because He knows what is coming. It's not just nails in His hands and feet, but it is the wrath of God Almighty that's getting ready to be poured out on Him. We think the wrath of God is no big deal. If I could take you into the future, I would say ask Satan. Ask Satan that the wrath of God is no big deal. As he is, and I quote from Revelation, thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where, and I quote again, he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Don't say that the wrath of God is no big deal. It is a big deal. And it awaits all who are dead in sin. And the reality is that all are by nature and by practice dead in sin. Fourth truth is this. We've kind of already been saying it, but I want to make sure, make sure we don't miss it. Being dead in sin is true of every person. Being dead in sin is true of every person. At least how we come into this world. Maybe you want to put in parentheses there, by nature. By nature, it is true of every person. Paul began this passage saying that you, talking to the Ephesians, were dead in sin. Then in verse 3, he moves from you to we saying, among whom we all once lived. And that phrase, we all, also goes with, were by nature children of wrath. We all once lived this way. We all were by nature children of wrath. And then just to make sure there's not somebody out there or some group of people out there that's saying, well, that's true for most people, but not true for me or not true for us. Notice how Paul drives this point home, the point of the universal impact of sin as he finishes out verse 3, like the rest of mankind like the rest of mankind like the rest of mankind again every single person commits sin and is by nature a sinner deserving god's wrath every single person is dead in sin and will die dead in sin unless something or someone breathes new life into us unless someone fixes the problem of sin in our lives and that leads us into the fifth truth Being dead in sin means there's nothing we can do to fix our problem. You probably thought we were about to get some good news. Hold on, it's coming. But perhaps one of the main points Paul is making here in describing our spiritual condition left to ourselves as being dead in sin is to make this point. 
we can do nothing to fix the problem of, of sin in our lives. Being dead in sin means there's nothing we can do to fix our problem. See, the, the, the problem with being dead in your sin is, is you deceive yourself. I mean, some people are willing to say, yes, I've sinned. Yes, God's not happy with that. Yes, I deserve his wrath. Now let me do something about it. I got to do something. If sin is the problem, well, let me stop sinning. I'm going I'm I'm to be a better person. I'm going to replace my bad deeds with good deeds. I'm going to make up for what I've done that is wrong. And here we go back to the beginning of verse 1. The word God chose for Paul to write to describe our spiritual condition is the word dead. The word dead communicates very clearly the level at which we can contribute to our salvation from sin. Nothing. We can contribute nothing. There's nothing we can do to fix our problem of sin. And it's really easy to see the picture that's being painted here for us. It's the picture of deadness. We're dead in sin. What can a dead person do? Nothing. Nothing. A dead person can't do anything, much less put life back into himself. You will never, think about it from a physical standpoint. You will never ever see someone whose heart has stopped beating, hooking himself up to an AED, and shocking his own heart back to life. That's something you will never ever see. Now you might see a fool whose heart is still beating, doing something dumb and hook himself up. Don't do that, okay? But you'll never see somebody who actually needs the defibrillator because their heart has stopped beating, hooking themselves back up. You'll never see that. Because why? They're dead. I saw a video of this the other day. They're laying there lifeless. It was somebody that had been electrocuted in a swimming pool. And they, were, they couldn't do anything. The only time they moved is when someone moved them. And thankfully someone came in and hooked them up. But you know who didn't hook that person up? The person. The dead one. The one whose heart has stopped beating. We can't do it. That's the point here. Not to mention the fact that our bad behavior. So we, we try to fix it by saying, well, I'll replace my bad behavior with good behavior. But that's missing the point of what our problem actually is. How deep it goes. You see, our very nature is corrupted. Just trying to do good things doesn't actually get to the heart of the problem. Because it's not just that we do sinful things. It's that we are by nature sinners. Our heart needs to be changed. We don't need a tune-up. We need a complete overhaul. We don't need a renovation. We need somebody to come in and bulldoze the whole house and in place build a new one. We need to go from death to life. And if we fail to truly understand the doctrine of sin, then we'll underestimate how bad the problem is and we'll overestimate our ability to contribute to the fixing of that problem. That's why Paul dives deep into sin Before he moves on to the hope of the gospel. We come into this world in need of nothing less than total spiritual transformation. At the same time, we are totally dead in sin. Or to put it another way, we're like those bones in the valley, church. We are hopelessly dead. And that is the greatest hopelessness in all the world. But we're only hopeless. Unless... Someone comes in with the power to give life. And then, of his own choosing and graciousness, especially when he's the one who has been sinned against, breathes new life into us. Do you remember the question that God asked Ezekiel? Can these bones live? And the answer, if you'll go back to Ezekiel chapter 37, I would encourage you to do that and read the rest of that passage 
The answer is this. I'll summarize it. Yes, yes, they can live if God breathes life into them. And that's exactly what we see Paul hint at in these first three verses and then describe in the rest of this passage. Oh, church, we ponder the depths of our spiritual hopelessness. Our spiritual condition of being dead in sin. We've examined the bad news, but now are you ready for some good news? I can't leave us laying in the grave today. Are you ready for the good news? The good news is this, church, and this is our final truth. Being dead in sin is in our past if we are in Christ. Being dead in sin is in our past, church, if we are in Christ. Can these bones live? Yes, they can. Notice that throughout verses 1 through 3, Paul speaks about the spiritual condition of being dead in sin in the past tense. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, among whom we all once lived. We were, by nature, children of wrath. If their condition, these, these Ephesian believers he's writing to, if their condition of being dead in sin was in the past, then that can only mean one thing, that they're now not spiritually dead anymore, which can only mean one thing, that they are now spiritually alive. Which means that there is hope, church, for those who are hopelessly dead in sin. What is that hope? What is the powerful saving intervention of Almighty God who sent His one and only Son to this earth to endure the wrath that we deserve on our behalf so that everyone who believes in Jesus, who runs to Him with their sin and says, all I have to give you, Jesus, is my deadness. Would you, not because I deserve it, but because you have died in my place out of your great love, give me your everlasting life. And we'll look at these words in detail in a couple of weeks, but I must read them to us now as we get ready to close. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. This is not, it's through faith. It's not of your works. It's not your own doing lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship. We didn't do the work. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand. Here's the spiritual transformation that we should walk in them. Once we were the walking dead, but in Christ, we can be the walking living, living forever, doing what God has called us to do. So are you in Christ today? That's the question. Are you in Christ today? I see some heads nodding and smiles on people's faces because you know what it's like to go from death to life. And if you don't know that, will you believe in Christ today? Will you trust in Him? Will you take your sin and you lay it at His feet and say, God, I need you to do what only you can do to step into my deadness and breathe life into me. Can these bones live? Yes, they can. Because of God's love for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do you need to believe in Jesus today? And if you have, and you know what it's like to go from death to life, church, will we celebrate Will we celebrate the new life that we have in Christ? Will we celebrate 
what God has done for us. And then when we look at the world around us and see a bunch of walking dead and say, I know the answer to your problem. And his name is Jesus. And when we go to them and say, you need Christ to bring you back to life. Only he can do it. And he's ready and willing. Let us pray. Father. Father, thank you. Thank you. That you are willing to sacrifice your son. To let him walk through the grave of death. So that we could be resurrected to new life. Father, remind us of the depth of our sin. For those who haven't trusted in Christ, so they'll know that there's no hope apart from your saving grace. They can't fix this themselves. They need to believe in Jesus. And Father, for those of us who have trust in Christ, remind us of the depths of our sin so that we will appreciate more fully your amazing grace in our lives. So that we'll be more motivated to go to a world full of spiritually dead people and share with them the hope of the gospel of Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.